We are in 2 Samuel chapter 21 this morning. We've been working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. We have this Sunday and two more Sundays, and then if you were here last Sunday, you heard me talk about the fact that I'm going to do a short window of time where I'm going to do a series called You Asked For It and allow you to ask if for, for a teaching on a particular passage or what does the Bible say about fill in the blank and you can fill that blank and there's some cards in the back and you can fill one of those cards out, drop it in the little building looking thing there, <clears throat> excuse me, and there's really nothing off limits clearly because of some of the cards that I've already gotten back. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. I. I have a number of responses, but I, I think some of them I'll probably consolidate into one message, and that will work just fine, and I'm really looking forward to that time together. We're going to enjoy the time this summer doing that together. In Joshua chapter 9, the story goes that the children of Israel, if you remember the story, they had been in Egypt as slaves. When God gave Abraham his blessing, and he promised Abraham descendants by the millions, one of the things that he told Abraham in that blessing was that his descendants would actually be slaves one day, but that he would deliver them. And we focus a lot on the blessing and the covenant that God made with Abraham, and rightfully so, but we miss the fact that sometimes in the plan of God, there are things that don't completely make sense. And we wonder sometimes why God allows these things into our lives. But the children of Israel, as you know, ended up in Egypt because of a famine, and they ended up being slaves. And the story of Exodus sort of breaks into that scenario, and they begin to, they, God miraculously delivers them from slavery in Egypt, and they go out in the wilderness. They wander through the wilderness. They come up to Canaan, the promised land that God had promised to give them. God promised to drive out the inhabitants ahead of them. And the children of Israel come up to that, and they saw the inhabitants, and they did not believe God could do it. They said, the people are too big. They're too strong. He'll never deliver us from those people. He will not get that land for us like he said he would. And so God, in judgment, put them back in the wilderness for 40 years. And all but two of them were buried in the wilderness. Those two were Joshua and Caleb. They came back, and they led the children of Israel into the promised land. And you find them in the book of Joshua coming into this land that they had been promised. And they come up to first city, Jericho, Miraculously, God delivers Jericho over to them. Ai, they defeat Ai. It's kind of a fascinating story around that. But if you get to Joshua chapter 9, you find that the kings of the area are suddenly aware that there's this massive nation coming into their land. And these kings are not necessarily sitting around saying, you know what, you could go ahead and have our land. You could go ahead and have our people. And so Joshua chapter 9 begins with this story of these kings all forming an alliance to fight the children of Israel. And they are all named, that they're all getting together except one group. 
And that one group is a group called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites decided to do something different. Rather than fight the children of Israel who were coming in there to take their land that God had promised, this group of people took a different approach and they said, there is no way that we're going to defeat these people because God keeps delivering them. And so what we're going to have to do is make a peace covenant with them. The problem is they know good and well there's no way the children of Israel are going to make a peace covenant with them and just say, you know what, it would be okay if you went ahead and lived in this land because we're coming in to take this, over, this land over. There was nothing to be gained for the children of Israel to do that. And so we read this story in Joshua chapter 9 how this group of Gibeonites took donkeys and provisions and they made them look old. Like they had been traveling for a long ways. They wore sandals that were worn out. They had bread that was falling apart because it was dried out. And they came to the children of Israel and they said, we've come from a long way away. And we came to make a covenant of peace with you. That we would serve you. We don't live anywhere around here. But we know who your God is. And we know that your God will deliver everybody in front of you. And isn't it ironic when people who don't even trust God have more faith in God than God's people do? Like they knew the strength of God. They knew the strength of Israel's God. And they said, there's no way that we're going to survive. And they saw that as a better option than to join an alliance of nations to defeat Israel. And it says that the men of Israel questioned them, and they said, how do we know that you're not actually living right here in this area? And they said, why would our bread look like this? Why would our sandals be worn out? Why would everything be covered with dust? If we lived right here in the area, it wouldn't look like this. And it says that the men of Israel made a covenant with them. You can go read this in Joshua chapter 9. It says the men of Israel made a covenant with them, and it says they did not consult the Lord in this, which is an interesting little sidebar is that they made this covenant with these people, but they never prayed about it. They never said, Lord, should we make a covenant with these people? They just said, well, this makes sense. So they're just moving on what seemed logically to make sense. When they realized who these Gibeonites were, and they realized they'd been tricked, and that they had just made a covenant of peace to protect this group of people who were literally living among them, they made them their servants and there was people in Israel who said it doesn't matter what we said let's take them out and let's destroy them anyway and it says the men of Israel would not do it and it specifically says in Joshua 9 it says because we don't want the wrath of God to come on us because we broke a covenant like if we made a promise before God we will keep that promise and if we break that promise we understand that the wrath of God is going to come on us. Now, if you were here last Sunday, we talked a little bit about some of the distinctions between before the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in God's people. Remember, we do the, the right thing for one of two reasons, either because we're afraid of the consequences or because we love what's right. These people are living in an age or a dispensation is a better term. The Old Testament dispensation 
where the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit was not automatic. And so they did the right thing because they were fully aware that there were consequences if they didn't. The New Testament tells us of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming, and he lives in the lives of God's people. And now there's a different motivation for doing the right thing. It's because God's Spirit is within us. And all of these stories need to be read in some of that context or else they get confusing. But here's a group of people who had made this covenant, and it says from then on the Gibeonites became their servants. And it says that they were choppers of wood and drawers of water. It's kind of interesting. That's what they did. They chopped wood for the Israelites, and they drew water for the Israelites. In other words, they worked for them. They were their servants, and they were allowed to live because Israel had made a covenant. That story needs to be known in order for the story today to make sense. If you don't know that story, and I began with the assumption that a bunch of you didn't, then the story today isn't going to make any sense. Now that you know the story, let's get into the text. 2 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 to 6, and then I want to kind of outline the rest of the passage from there. 2 Samuel 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So there's a famine, isn't raining, crops aren't growing. The food source is dwindling and it's being depleted and there's nothing there to replenish it because they've had three years with no harvest. If you would read on from the verses that I read, you would know that this is specifically at the time of the year where they were supposed to start harvesting the barley. And I think it's safe to assume that because of the famine that there was no barley to harvest. Now you think it's dry around here. I mean, it's a little better this morning. But imagine three years where the rains just don't come. You know, last night, it was just raining so beautifully. And I told my wife, I said, there's a lot of farmers going to bed with a smile on their face tonight, just listening to the rain on the roof and knowing that their, their crops are getting the water it needs. But for three years, year after year, it says, 
Now, we don't know for sure what season of time or season of David's reign this happened in. The narrator doesn't really tell us. This is a separate story from where we were just at. We concluded the story of David's sin and then Absalom's rebellion and then the restoration of David. We concluded that last Sunday. This is sort of a standalone story where they had a famine and they realize they're under the judgment of God. And they're under the wrath of God. Those people were experiencing exactly what the men in Joshua's day were afraid of if they violated their covenant with the Gibeonites. Those men knew if we violate this covenant that we made before God, we made a promise before God, and if we violate that, that we are putting ourselves in a position to experience a curse on our land. And that's exactly what happened. If you would go on and read in verses 7 and 9, David says that he would give seven of Saul's sons. If you remember, Mephibosheth was one of Saul's grandsons that David had promised that he would protect. And the text very specifically says in verse 7 that the king spared Mephibosheth, but he took two sons from one of Saul's wife, Merib, and, I'm sorry, he took five sons from Merib and two sons from Rizpah, and he allowed the Gibeonites to hang them in the town where Saul had lived. And if you go on and you read verses 10 to 14, Rizpah, one of the mothers, the one lost two sons, it talks about how she took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock and from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell, she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them. And so, she, so there's these seven bodies just hanging out. That was maybe a bad choice of words. <laughs> they were hanging out. They were hanging there. And there's these seven bodies hanging there. And she, in her grief, she just comes and camps out there and she won't allow any of the animals to feed on those bodies. She protects them. And she just did that day after day. That's an incredible scene, isn't it? This grieving mother out there on a rock with sackcloth. She's grieving the loss of her two sons and five nephews living in a day of famine. David hears about it, and David responds by not only giving those five sons a proper burial, but he even went a step further, and he went and took the, the bones of Saul and his sons, and specifically Jonathan, who had died with him so many years before this, and he brought them back, and he buried them all together. And it says at that point, the famine stopped and the curse was lifted. The last section of that chapter, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it, partly because it, or mostly because it deals with some themes that we've covered quite a bit in our study here. But it says that the, the Philistines made war against them again. And then there's like some very fast narrative in that last section, verses 15 to 22 about war with the Philistines that broke out a couple times, and it keeps talking about these giants. Well, remember where Goliath was from? I mean, that's the most common story that we know about David, right, is David fighting Goliath. Well, 
the giant fighting days were not over, and so the narrator just makes this point, and he talks about a couple different giants that fought against the children of Israel and how that the children of Israel prevailed over every one of them. The last one was one of David's nephews, Jonathan, struck down a giant who, interestingly enough, had six fingers and six toes, had 24 digits, and I don't know why we needed to know that, but we find it interesting because you can just, just kind of picture this guy with, you know, six fingers and he's a giant of a man and he comes up against Israel and God gives them the strength and they take him out. But you see the, almost the contrast, or not almost, there is a contrast. You see Saul having sin against God and the people who follow him pay for it his sin. And you see David having been faithful to be a giant slayer and the people who follow him also having victory over giants. Like in one, the generations suffering a curse because of their father's sin. And another, the next generation is enjoying a blessing because of their father's faithfulness. And you can kind of see the contrasting stories there. Well, what are we supposed to do with a story like this that in many ways seems odd and unjust to us? We think of those five men being taken to be hung for sin that they didn't commit because their dad did it. The sins of the father's. There's a problem with a cause. The problem is the famine. But the cause is the sin that Saul had done in breaching his integrity. And the reason that that's a big deal is that God's name was at stake. The people of God must live with integrity because we represent the name of God. So, when the nations around Israel were looking at Israel, the people who worship Jehovah God, the one true God, the only thing that they could really know about who this God was was by watching his people. Do you know that's still the same way? The only way that our culture really knows anything about who God really is is by watching his people. If they see people who lack integrity, they assume something about our God. That our God also lacks integrity. And so, in Joshua chapter 9, when those guys refused to break their covenant, even though they had been deceived into that covenant... The reason they gave for not breaking that covenant was because the name of the Lord was at stake. And when Saul chose to break the covenant, he is not only hurting the Gibeonites, not only hurting the nation of Israel, he is bringing reproach to the name of his God. And that was a big deal. It's still a big deal, it still matters. It matters how you and I live today 
as people who name the name of Jesus Christ and represent him to a world who's still not sure what they think of him. In some cases, people may hate him. In some cases, people may be apathetic to him. There might be people who have a lot of questions about him. But one thing you can rest assured, if you name the name of Jesus and if you call yourself a Christian, which literally means little Christ, people are watching you. And they are making assumptions about your God by what they see in your life and in mine. If we mistreat them, they make assumptions. And you and I both know that story hasn't always been great. The people who name the name of Christ have not always lived according to the teachings of Christ. And that always creates a tension, and it's always a problem. But here in this particular scenario, Saul, as this patriarchal leader, commits egregious sin, and the, ca or the cause was his sin. The problem was that another generation experienced a famine. Secondly, there is a plan with a cry. Think about how this plan unfolds. David goes to the Gibeonites, which I would not have advised David to go to a group of people who were not necessarily following Jehovah God, but they were also hurt and bitter over what had happened and saying to that group of people, why don't you give me advice? I would probably tell David, don't take your advice from the Gibeonites, but that's what he did. And the commentator, the narrator, gives us no indication as to whether God blessed that or not, or whether God was even okay with that. But David starts this exchange with the Gibeonites, and their first response is, well, silver and gold is not going to take care of this. That may have been because they were slaves and it wouldn't do them any good. Maybe they're just saying, you can't buy this. Like you, do, you need to understand how incredibly egregious this was that Saul violated Israel's covenant with our people. And they completely see themselves as victims in this scenario. And they were victims. But you and I both know that being a victim is a pretty good gig because everybody owes you something and you're justified in asking for anything. And it's actually, being a victim is a really hard drug to kick, actually. Like the self-pity, people owe me something. I have been mistreated. Boy, that's hard to kick. And it's so easy to become literally intoxicated where our judgment is impaired where we almost get a high off of it of taking from other people because of something that was done against us well the Gibeonites are definitely victims they're like man you are not buying your way out of this situation but far be it from us to ask for the blood of anyone 
and then they turn around and say, but we do ask for the blood of someone. Like they're kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth. On one hand, they're saying, nobody has to die. And then they come back, they're like, actually seven are going to need to die. And can you just imagine a little bit what it must have been like for the families of those men and then specifically for those men as they came and told them, listen, here's the problem. Your father sinned. Here's the plan. We're going to hang you. This is one of those details that I wish the narrator would even give us some kind of glimpse. Like, what was the reaction of those men? I think it's safe to say that the men did not say, that yeah, cool. I, I could do without oxygen. Like, there had to have been some, some sense of mourning, some sense of sadness there. And you sort of see that in the picture of Rizpah in her public display of grief and mourning. But what lesson are we supposed to learn from that? And that is just simply sin that is unresolved just continues that path of pain. Those men, I think it would have only been human for them to wish that their father Saul had taken care of his own sin. Isn't that safe to assume? That they would probably have wished that their father Saul had taken care of his own sin. Maybe they wish that there would be some other way for somebody else to pay the penalty for their father's sin. And it had to have felt unfair to those five guys and their families, their mom, mothers, friends, and in that time, that had to have felt so unfair to say, why are we paying for the sin of our father? Why is his foolish, selfish, self-promoting actions landing on our head? And is that okay? And what do you do with David agreeing to do that and acknowledging that it actually needed to happen. Was that even in keeping with the law that David was called to follow? Because in the Torah it said, Exodus, says it again in Numbers, reiterates it in Isaiah, by the way, a number of years later. God says, I will bless the righteous to thousands, but I will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation. And God literally said, the sins of the fathers, they're going to affect the next generations. And there can be a point where you're like, man, I don't think this is fair. And in some ways, it doesn't feel fair. In other ways, it's literally the result of living in a world that is cursed by sin. Now, God also said in Deuteronomy, he said, the sons shall not die for the sins of the fathers, and the fathers shall not die for the sins of the sons. So I have a problem with what David did here. Like, this seems a little tough to me. I don't know why Achan's family, you know, when they, 
were dealing with, when they were coming into the promised land, you know, and Achan's sin. I don't know why Achan's whole family had to be stoned for Achan's sin. I don't know why these boys or men had to die for the sins of Saul. And I can't answer all those questions. Because on one hand, you can say, I can see God saying, I will visit the sins of the fathers on the third, or the iniquity of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation. On the other hand, he's saying, but the, like there's a line. I'm not asking the sons to actually die for the sins of their fathers, or vice versa. And I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. But imagine the longing, and this is the only point I want to make in this moment, the longing for somebody else to pay the price. And there they hang. If you remember, a few weeks ago we looked at this story of Absalom hanging between heaven and earth. David positions himself between heaven and earth because of the curse. And the Christ hung between heaven and earth, and he took on the curse. And now we have more people hanging between heaven and earth to take on a curse. And don't you think there was this longing in those guys for somebody else to take the curse? What if somebody else would come and take this curse? And they knew that God had promised a Messiah who would one day come and who would one day take the curse of sin on himself and who would also hang between heaven and earth. And I don't know how much these guys were aware that he was coming but I can guarantee you that that day they wished he had already come. And aren't you glad that he did come and that you and I live as the gracious recipients of that? Lastly, there's a penalty with a cure, and I don't want to belabor the point, but the penalty was death. They did hang there between heaven and earth. They took the curse on, and God stopped the famine. The gospel breaks the curse. And that's the point that I want to make in our final minutes here. If you go to Jeremiah, in chapter 23, it says, in those days, now to give some context, Jeremiah is a prophet after the nation of Israel has sinned so egregiously against God and they've been taken to Babylon under God's judgment. And Jeremiah is a prophet that God raised up to speak into the sin of the nation of Israel. But Jeremiah is also a prophet that gives a lot of hope for a day when it's coming where God would fulfill his promises to bring another day, to bring a Messiah, to bring a Redeemer, and to restore his people relationally, not only his people, but that he would also invite the nations into a relationship with him. And as, as God is looking forward, he gives these words to Jeremiah and says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And God is saying that there's a day coming where this system or this generational curse, as it were, can actually be broken. He says you will have a time coming where you will not have to say anymore, well, dad sinned, therefore I have to pay the penalty for his sin. We're talking about inherited sin. Now, this raises a question, doesn't it? 
Is there still inherited sin? Do we still inherit sin from our parents? Do you and I suffer consequences because of things that our parents or grandparents may have done and may have opened up a door? Are there generational strongholds? How much does the generations ahead of me affect who I am today? Well, some of it's obvious. Because there's a very physical component, we resemble our parents. We share genetics. So we may be wired the same way, even in personality, so there's an emotional component that we inherit from our parents. We inherit things like likes and dislikes. I was raised in a home where we never, ever, ever, ever ate at a Wendy's. You did not eat at Wendy's. Once in a while, we would ask Dad, why don't we eat at Wendy's? He says, because their hamburgers are terrible. He said, you will have a film of grease on your tongue when you get done with a, with a Wendy's hamburger. He said, we don't eat at Wendy's. We're Utsis. We don't eat at Wendy's. <laughs> and one day, we were, we were visiting some friends on the East Coast, and we decided to go to, my dad decided to take us to Washington, D.C., and we were, you know, walking around, seeing all the historical sites, and it was a mealtime, and we were all so incredibly hungry, and my dad did the unthinkable, and he took us into a Wendy's and bought us a meal. It was the first time I'd ever eaten in a Wendy's. And we all agreed that day that dad was right. <laughs> I still don't eat at Wendy's. I, literally, I think there has been two other times in my entire life that I've eaten at a Wendy's. One time during my rebellious teens, I thought, you know, dad surely was wrong about that. I think I'm smarter than him. And I ate another Wendy's hamburger. And I was like, by the time I got done, I was like, nope, dad was right. <laughs> got to admit it. And um, I just don't eat there. I inherited that from my dad. Proud of it doing my best to pass it on to the next generation. And if there's any Wendy's people here today, you can repent later. <laughs> I'm trying to include McDonald's into that with my, for my family, by the way. But I inherited it. I was just born into a family that had that particular value. And most of you are like, that's about the dumbest thing ever. Like, don't you ever eat a Frosty? Like, no, because Wendy sells Frosties. <laughs> but you see how the values of our parents affect us? I have kind of an illogical, I'll admit it's illogical, aversion to one place because of something that I inherited. Now, that one's pretty humorous. And... Quite frankly, my dad would, could care less if we ate at a Wendy's every day of the week at this point. But it's just funny how that affects us. Pete Cesaro wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Leaders, Emotionally Healthy Churches, I think is another book that you wrote. But, but Cesaro talks about your shadow. And he talks about how every one of us have a shadow, which is sort of his term that he gives for a blind spot. It's things that we sort of build into our lives that other people can see, they notice it, but we're kind of blind to it. And he says the reason we're blind to it is that we receive our shadow from our family of origin. We tend to duplicate learned behaviors that we saw. 
And so ways of dealing with anger, for example, we just duplicate what we saw. If you grew up in a family where anger was dealt with by silence, you tend to either duplicate it or react to it. But you got to do something with it. And that learned behavior can very quickly become your shadow. You're blind to it unless somebody points it out to you, unless the Holy Spirit or another person points it out to you. Some of those sins that we inherit are obvious addictions, things like that. Some of them are more subtle ways of relating to people, being hypercritical, being passive-aggressive, being vocally aggressive. Not uncommon that you have a person who grew up in a family that was very verbal with conflict will end up marrying somebody who grew up in a family who was very silent with conflict. That's not uncommon at all. And then they get married, and conflict happens. Guess what happens? One of them's silent, the other one's verbal. And whichever one you are, the only thing you know is that the other one's wrong. Just know that for sure. If you're the silent kind, you're like, why would you verbalize when you're upset? Well, if you're the verbal person, you're saying, because no one knows what's going on if you don't talk about it. Like, we got to talk about it, get it out there. And the silent ones, yeah, but when you talk, you hurt people. And oftentimes, our response to those kinds of things has a lot to do with our family of origin and choices that our grandparents and our fathers made, our parents made. And we either sort of just follow the model that they set in front of us or we react to it and like jump in the ditch on the other side of the road. Like, oh my goodness, you know, if my... If my parent, one of my parents, you know, was one of the silent types, and man, I hated it when they just walked around and wouldn't talk to anybody. So I'm going the other direction. Man, I'm going in the other ditch. When I'm upset, you will know I'm upset. I will verbalize it. Well, both of those are learned behaviors, and we're trying to sort through the way that our parents made choices. Young parents... Don't get too arrogant. Your kids are going to have to sort through your choices too. You're you're teaching your kids stuff too. Don't think that this is only an issue of, well, how do I cope with my parents' failures? It's also an issue of what am I going to pass on to the next generation? And what am I passing on? What am I teaching them about how to handle Stress, anger, frustration. What am I modeling for these kids? And what do I do if I'm just blind to my own tendencies? Because it feels normal to me. I mean, this is the way my home always did it, right? This is the way my parents always did it. Well, that's the scenario that they found themselves in in the Old Testament of being bound to the iniquities of their parents. 
And there was a very spiritual component to that. And what are they supposed to do with that? And that's what God is addressing to Jeremiah. He says, he says in those days, they shall, say no they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, so the children's teeth are set on edge. He says, there's a day coming where you won't have to be bound to the generational sins of your parents, where you don't have to walk around as an angry person if your dad was an angry person. You don't have to walk around as a lustful person if your dad was a lustful person or an addicted person if your dad was an addicted person. I don't know why I'm picking on the dads. But you get what I'm saying. So it should raise the question for us, in what days? Because if God is saying this to Jeremiah in those days, you and I would naturally, or the people of Jeremiah's day would naturally say, in what days? Please, hasten the day, right? Bring it. I don't want to be bound to this anymore. And then he goes on a couple verses later in Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And he's saying, let me describe for you what this day is going to look like where there will be freedom from generational curses and sins he says, it's a day where I will take the law and I will put it inside my people internally, where the internal motivation will be something that, that God places there by his spirit. This was unheard of. They lived in a day where the law was external. It was written on tablets, the apostle Paul says later. And if you go over to Hebrews in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews points back to this scripture in Jeremiah. And he acknowledges and he quotes right out of this scripture. He says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until, the time, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's us. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. And it says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness this for us for after saying, this is the covenant. See these words? Quotes right out of Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After these days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their, on their minds. Then he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That is good news. That is good news. That you and I are privileged to live in a day where the grace of God will set us free from the sins of the fathers. Where you and I can experience the freedom through grace. This is, by the way, a long description of a word. The word is grace. The description is, I will put my law on their hearts and on their minds. It is God doing internally in us what we could never do for ourselves. You can't put it inside. You can't change your own heart to the point that your heart wants to do what is right. But God can. It's called the Holy Spirit. He indwells the lives of his believers. 
Those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, who trust the promise of Hebrews chapter 10 that Christ for one time offered one sacrifice for sin, not multiple, but one time that he hung on the cross and he paid for our sins, not just our sins, but he paid for our father's sins, paid for our grandfather's sins, that he covered the curse of those sins and he paid the price for them. And he only needed to do it one time because the sacrifice was perfect and complete and total. And any approach that you and I have to our sin or a generational sin that does not depend fully on the grace of God is a false hope for freedom. If you are hoping to follow a formula or a set of rules or your best efforts in any way, shape, or form, I cannot promise you any freedom from sin. But I can tell you that if you will rest your life and live your life by the grace of God, that he promises, this isn't me promising, he promises that he will write his law on your heart and that he will set you free from sin. Your sin, your parents' sin, your grandfather's sin. And don't you wish that you could grab those five guys who hung there on the mountain that day and say, pick up your head. There's a day coming where this will no longer be necessary that the, the children would suffer for the sins of their parents. That they would have to pay a penalty for the sin of their parent. Because the day is coming when one will hang between heaven and earth on a cross, his name is Jesus, and he will for once and for all time, he will free us from sin and from the curse. And you may be sitting here this morning, and you may be saying, look, I can see some generational strongholds in my life. Man, I see some stuff that my dad was into, and I, cannot, I can't seem to kick this stuff. My mom had this way of dealing with relationships. And I, and I watch myself doing the same thing to my kids, and I hate it. We've all got those stories. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? I didn't, it feels like it was more than just learned. It feels like it's inside of me somehow. You know what needs to happen? It has to change from the inside out. Trying harder doesn't fix it. You can grit your teeth and say, man, I have got to try harder not to be like my parent. You know what your eyes are on at that point? Sins of your parent. Do you know you always move towards what you're looking at? So there's some process. First of all, you forgive your parent. Because Christ forgave them. You also need to be forgiven for the part that's yours personally. But I can tell you with absolute confidence that when God promises to set us free from sin through grace, that He will do what He says He will do if you and I will respond. And the plea of our hearts ought to be, Lord, change me from the inside out. Change my wanter. Change the desires. 
because I find myself continuing the sins of my parents unless you change me from the inside out through your spirit. And he can and he will. And he does. That's my sermon in a sentence. Grace changes our story from inherited sin to inherited blessing. Grace changes our story. Are you living by grace this morning? Has he changed, has he changed you by his Holy Spirit from the inside out? Because that's the key to freedom. A few study questions. And I need to bring it to a close. Charlie, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up. Some of you may be sitting here and you're like, man, I don't even know for sure where to take the first step. Like, how do I apply this? And I can only tell you, go back to what God said in his word, the promises that he gave. I will put a new law. I will put my law in their hearts and their minds and say, Lord, do it in me. Change me from the inside out. I see tendencies that i pretty sure I inherited. Even see some strongholds, like sin strongholds, that it just seems like I can't break sometimes. And, and I wish I could get past these. It's okay to sit down with a counselor. Sometimes it's helpful just to work through some of that. But in the big picture... Unless the grace of God is your aim and your goal, unless you are experiencing the changing power of the Holy Spirit in your life, those things aren't going away. If you are experiencing the changing power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're going to see growth and change happening in your life. And you will turn around five years later and look back and say, boy, it doesn't have the hold on me it used to have. I don't have to suffer for those sins. Christ paid for them. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the incredible, incredible freedom that you purchased for us on Calvary. Lord, there isn't a one of us in this room that isn't faced at times with not just our sin, but stuff that we see in our lives that feels like we kind of inherited it. God, thank you that you died for those sins too. And that your grace can literally change us from the inside out. God, you can take an angry person and make them a peaceful person. You can take a passive person and make them and, and give them a fire in their belly and, and make them very effective. Only you can do that by your spirit. So Lord, I pray that you would expose the emptiness of all of our efforts that we've tried and that you would give us that one aim and one burning passion that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would change us from the inside out. God, it's only for the glory of your name. We love you and we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.